Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got him! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes a catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to another episode of The Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. We are SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog, and you can find us online at blessyouboys.com, also on Twitter at Bless You Boys, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, along with my partner, Rob Rojacki. Rob, the question I have for you is, how many times today have you refreshed the MLB Trade Rumors website? Well, I'm getting it on my phone now, and I think I'm just kind of pulling up constantly, trying to get it over and over and over. I now have it on my phone as well, and I thought that was a good idea at the time, but man, they have a lot of a lot of notifications come through. So it's and a lot of crap notifications. People yes. need to start doing stuff. Yeah, that's what you're right. We're going to blame the teams and not uh, MLB trade rumors for sending us like wrap up posts and stuff like that. Anyway, it's it's tough for all of us, and we actually had more listeners on last week's show than we've had in about six weeks, so I guess we're providing some kind of like community service for restless baseball fans at this point. Either that or they're as bored as we are. That's what I'm saying. We're providing a great service for those that are just like, what the hell do I do now? Hey, there's a new podcast. I think I'll listen to that. So grab a couple of logs for the hot stove, pour yourself a dark beer, a brandy, maybe a nice bourbon, and we'll keep each other company while we all wait for spring. On the menu today, Dave Dombrowski. It's kind of a jerk. Everybody is making moves except the Tigers. Jose Fernandez might be on the trading block. MLB could be changing up some rules. We'll take our usual plate full of listener questions and then wrap things up by talking baseball versus football with Chris Lemieux of prideofdetroit.com. But before we get to all that... The Tigers are all smoke and no fire so far. More on that next. 210-pound righty delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance, and this ball is gone a home run. Ian Kinsler delivers the walk-off. Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home. And the Tigers take the series from D.C. All right, let's get this show kicked off with our rounding the bases segment. Rob, the Tigers are all smoke and no fire. They're all bark and no bite. They're all roar and no ravage. There, uh, there you go. I have finished the trifecta. Uh, Alavila's doing a lot of talking, Rob, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of action yet. What's going on? Well, it's only November, what, November 17th? 17th. November 17th. Um, so it's still really early yet. I don't necessarily think that, you know, we need to go out and do stuff right away. Um, I know that, well, I guess this is a bad example now, but over the last few years, Dayton Moore of the Kansas City Royals was kind of maligned for a lot of his quick moves. I know that he had signed Jason Vargas and some other guys. Jeremy Guthrie, I think, was signed rather early in the offseason, and everyone was, you know, kind of blaming him for getting out ahead and doing these moves that everyone just was kind of puzzled by. Um, you know, now they go off and win the World Series and everything, so that's kind of why that looks a little bit bad. Um, 
But, you know, it, there, I think there's a little bit of value in, you know, having a little bit of patience. And, you know, it's still early yet and guys are, you know, fielding offers and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's boring and we don't have much to talk about. But, I mean, we do have a lot to talk about. But um, I don't think that it's necessarily a, a worrying sign that we haven't done anything yet. No, when I look back at the past, you know, four or five years in uh, off seasons and what Dave Dombrowski did in that time, I think the earliest move he ever made was like, november 15th or something and that was a rare occurrence he, he even he didn't usually do deals till closer to thanksgiving and look at it this way i don't think the tigers are going to make that many moves this year so would you rather have them all right up front in november and then have to go through all of december and january with nothing or would you rather just kind of wait and let them happen slowly over the next several months i mean i'd rather have them not happen all at once like they did last year when the tigers did like three or four moves um, right at the beginning of, or at the end of the winter meetings there. And then we had to write like 12,000 posts in one day and that wasn't very fun. Um, <laughs> and then we had nothing else to talk about the rest of the off season. So if he wants to spread them out a little bit, that would be nice. Um, but I, you know, as far as timing goes, you know, give us something in December, maybe something in January and then, you know, let us just watch Netflix in February or something. Eh, I'm good with that. As long as it's not Netflix and chill. You sick bastard. <laughs> So the Tigers, though, are doing a lot of talking. Alavila's doing a lot of talking. We're hearing that uh, they're interested in basically every pitcher ever born. Uh, names like Hisashi Wakuma, Joaquim uh, Soria, Giovanni Gallardo, Sean Kelly. Rob, is there anybody they're not interested in at this point? Well, we haven't heard much about the big names like David Price and Zach Grinke, but you know, given the, the money they're probably going to earn this offseason, not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I'm not sure I really want to see them sign David Price or Zach Greinke. I mean, as much as you go, yeah, that would be awesome to have those guys on the team. I, I, I've been doing a lot of number crunching lately with the budget that they're working with. It's going to be a just a bitch to make this work, and I don't know how they would if they signed someone like David Price. Yeah, I mean, you know, rough numbers say that they're they've got, what, $40 million to work with, and you assume that, you know, signing someone like Price, that would eat up probably about $30 million of that. So you've got $10 million left to fix the bullpen, the outfield, maybe get a backup catcher, you know, add any other depth. You can find another starter uh, in the rotation as well. And $10 million doesn't exactly divide that many ways in baseball. No, especially when you talk about, like, the bullpen and needing maybe two, maybe three arms. You figure the average price of a, of a you know, even a mid-level bullpen guy should be about four or five million dollars. Three arms is fifteen million. So there you go. You, you just blew everything. Even if you sign David Price for twenty million, you know you've just eaten up half the budget on one pitcher. And now what? It's this is going to be a tough, tough task for Alavila. It is. Um, you know, I definitely don't think David Price is going to sign for just twenty million dollars there. But it also goes, um, you know, the other way. And that if the Tigers spend that $20 million on an outfielder, you know, they only have $20 million left to fix the entire pitching staff. And mm-hmm. that staff wasn't very good in 2015. Maybe this is why Al Avila says so many swears when he does his interviews. God damn it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. But you know what? The thing is, there, there's been some good signs, I think, coming out of the Al Avila camp in, in recent days. I saw Anthony Fennec tweeted... Uh, just a couple of days ago, it was. It said that, uh, let me grab the tweet here. Avila said the team is looking at bullpen upgrades as a whole, not on a right-handed or left-handed basis. Quote, you'd rather have a real good righty than not a very good lefty, Avila said. So it just depends on the best relief pitchers. Rob, that is, that's freaking music to my ears that he's how, actually. How long have we been waiting for this? Yes. Like, I, for a decade maybe? I don't know. 
until you know ever since i kind of got deeply involved with following the tigers and everything they've never done this and at least hearing it is a good step um you know they haven't even paid lip service to this type of thing you know under under dombrowski um so it's it's <laughs> great to hear and some of the names that they're interested in kind of hint towards that you know you get a guy like sean kelly who uh you know none of these guys that they've mentioned other than joaquin soria has the proven closer tag right. um you know kelly had a pretty good strikeout to walk ratio in 2015 you know his numbers weren't great when he was pitching for the yankees before that uh, so you'll see exactly how he rebounds uh ryan madsen missed like almost three years but you know in the times he was healthy and was pitching he's been very good and tommy hunter is kind of that buy low candidate um you know i think most fans will remember him for giving up that bomb to miguel cabrera uh you know in baltimore uh in 2014 i was actually at that game and uh side note took a, i was in baltimore this weekend took a picture of the plaque where victor martinez's home run ball landed uh-huh. so check oh, my yes. twitter out for that um but you know getting back on track here all of these guys um you know, they're good relief pitchers. They're right-handed, for one. Um, but, you know, I haven't taken a look at the splits, but you kind of think that, you know, even if they can get a righty, they can get lefties out. That's going to be a lot better than a mediocre left-hander like Tom Gorzolani. Yeah, I, I wish that we could not talk about Tom Gorzolani ever again. Let's just ban that name from the podcast, and it makes everything better. But, yes, I'm hearing totally shades of, of Earl Weaver in this statement because I remember reading that in his book on baseball strategy and his whole philosophy he said you know was you you pitch the guy that's pitching well period it doesn't matter if he's a lefty or righty and he said it does you know if the guy can strike out both lefties and righties then you put him out there period and I I just see you know I saw I guess too much of that in 2014 and 2015 and, and Brad Osmus wanting to play matchups all the time and I, I think that uh Dave Dombrowski, in a sense, maybe catered to that by saying, okay, yeah, I'll go get you some lefties because you need lefties for matchups and now you need some righties and so forth. So it's just, yeah, it is awesome to hear Al Avila say, yeah, <laughs> righty, lefty, doesn't really matter what the handedness is, just we're going to get the best relief pitchers. Hey, I'd be okay with them, you know, sending out six good righties and Blaine Hardy and letting Brad Osmus find his way through that. <laughs> oh, man. Is it going to be like general manager versus manager at this point? Like, here, these are the cards you're going to play. Just try and screw this up. Hey, I, you know, I'll take it. It worked for it worked for the Royals. Well, yeah, you've, I mean, you got a point. I don't know if anybody would call Dayton more a genius, but I'm, I'm going to put my money on Alavila for that. And it's cool that you, you mentioned um, Sean Kelly as being one of those guys. And I tell you, I've been looking at some of these names on the free agent list. I'm really, really hot on Sean Kelly and Antonio Bastardo. I mean, you talk about two guys that could be had for relatively cheap and just strike everybody out in sight. I think Bastardo had a strikeout per nine this year. of I think it was around 10. He was striking out 10 batters per nine. And Sean Kelly was, I want to say, 11-something, 11-4, 11-6, somewhere in there. I mean, mm-hmm. just we'll probably talk a lot more about this as we get further into the podcast and talk about the pitching needs and so forth, but... When you start lining up pitchers like that and and you add a third piece, whether that's Joaquin Soria or even someone like Oliver Perez is another name that I've been really excited about, real cheap guy that can get a lot of strikeouts, it changes everything. If you can have three guys coming out of the bullpen striking out over 10 batters per nine, man, suddenly the, the, the world opens up in terms of what you can get for uh starting pitchers you don't have to have Justin Verlander ace on the mound every time you can get away with one of the mid-shelf guys if he only has to go for six six and two-thirds you know get you to the seventh and it's uh, it's the Royals formula all over again 
It really is, um, but I think it, it's kind of a cheaper formula for them to use. You know, you get a guy like Kelly or Ryan Madsen. Those guys are probably going to make, what, 4 or $5 million at most. You know, I think Bestardo will get more because he's a lefty. Um, but you get, you know, a couple of these guys, and then you sign a guy like Giovanni Gallardo, and then you're spending, you know, maybe $20, 25000000 million for three guys instead of one. Uh, but at the same time, you get guys in Kelly and Madsen who can work on multiple days, and you're not blowing that all on one, you know, one game in five. So that they're able to impact more games, you know, they may not, they may not even accumulate as much war as you know David Price. But when you're looking at David Price plus two bargain bin relievers like Jabba Chamberlain or whatnot, sometimes that negative value may almost, you know, from those guys may almost work against what you have in this one great starting pitcher. Well, and that's what we've seen in Detroit over the years, over and over again, is you know a super super good frontline rotation. Uh, you know the David Price, the Max Scherzer, the Justin Verlander, but you kind of go. If you have rotting wood at the end of the, uh, that plank, and that is the bullpen, uh, it doesn't matter because then your starters have to literally go out there and throw shutouts every single time. And even then, it might not be enough because the bullpen will just uh, co- collapse and the whole thing caves in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, getting, you know, some of these other guys, I've kind of mentioned Gallardo because that's one of the guys that the Tigers have been interested in. Um, you know, he's a guy that's really kind of struggled that third, third time through the order. Mm. Um, I, I was looking back and he actually didn't even work a start longer than six innings in the second half of 2015. Um, part of that is the Texas bullpen was pretty good. Uh, you know, they had kind of a nice little three-headed uh, monster at the back end of that bullpen that was able to, you know, win them a lot of games. Um, but you get a guy like that who, you know, you'd kind of pointed out the Royals formula for success is that, you know, get through five, get through six innings, and then go to that, you know, pretty good bullpen. You know, the Tigers may not have the same type of dominance out of their pen that the Royals did, but even getting a few guys that can that you know that can strike guys out that can work through some of these innings that's going to be a big improvement for them and they may be able to kind of steal more games than they did in 2015 because of that yeah and the difference with the, between the tigers and the royals as you're talking about that is you don't have to have the royals bullpen because the tigers offense is actually slightly better than the royals so even if the tigers bullpen consists of a sean kelly and antonio bastardo and hey guess what you can stick alex wilson in that mix too and you do have three really good relievers to go seven eight nine then uh they may give up slightly more runs at the end of the year than you know uh, calvin herrera and wade davis and whoever the royals are going to close with this year um but it's okay because you make up that that difference in, in run production i think the tigers can do that better than the royals could I think they could too, and that you know it, you also mentioned that the, you know, the Tigers' offense was better than the Royals last year. That's with you know Miguel Cabrera struggling in September. That's with Victor Martinez being a dead rotten piece of wood himself, yes. or at least his left knee. Um, and so you know if either of those guys bounce back, I mean Cabrera still had a pretty good year overall, um, but if he gets you know back to what he was what he was from April to August, and then Victor Martinez bounces back somewhat, and J.D. Martinez just kind of continues what he's doing. You know, this is, again, kind of looking like a top five, top three offense in the league. Right, and and adding some of those arms that we just talked about, a Sean Kelly and Antonio Bastardo, maybe an Oliver Perez, you throw Alex Wilson in the mix, and suddenly, guess what? You, you, you've you got yourself a real nice formula. And as you just said, that I, I, there, there it is. Uh, Victor Martinez's knee is made of Tiger's bullpen. That's what it is. That's why that his knee keeps collapsing. That's why it smells bad. Ooh, ooh, I don't want to... Okay. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and tank the rest of this segment then. <laughs> we're going to have to fly through this. 
Uh, I think we'll just wrap it up right there, and when we come back from the break, we'll go into the warming the pen segment. I just got one thing to say about that. Damn you, Dombrowski. Talk about that when we get back. Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball, right field. Deep and down the line, and gone! Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. They lead it 7-6. And we're back from the break, ready for the warming in the pen segment. Damn you, Dombrowski. Rob, he's at it again. He's at it again. The news broke over the weekend. Dave Dombrowski is like, I'm here. I am making my statement as, a, well, he's not even a general manager. But the announcement comes out that the Red Sox have acquired super closer Craig Kimbrell. And uh, apparently Dave Dombrowski pulled off this trade and gave up a bunch of prospects from the Boston Red Sox. This this, this is... a uh, a familiar tale is it not it definitely is you know dave rombrowski got his proven closer uh and i think a lot of tigers fans were kind of miffed that you know why couldn't he do that well he was in detroit uh well part of that has to do with the prospects he gave up um you know dombrowski i think he really kind of overpaid mm-hmm. for kimbrough here he gave the the padres you know a really good outfield i want to say like a top 20 top 30 prospect in uh i believe his name is manuel margot another top 100 prospect, as well as a couple other interesting guys. You know, he gave up four prospects for Kimbrell when, you know, even probably just Margot, the outfielder, would have been enough. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, Craig Kimbrell is not exactly an ordinary reliever, although he was slightly more human in 2015 than he was in any of his years with the Braves. Um, so, you know, it really kind of depends on how much you value having that elite bullpen arm, that elite closer at the back end and how that pushes everyone else down. I know that I can't remember if it was Fangraphs or baseball prospectus, but they're actually trying to look at a little bit of, um, you know, just kind of taking a macro view and seeing what having an elite reliever does for your bullpen. And they found that it actually does kind of help things overall um, because you're putting them in, you know, the most higher leverage situations and they're able to close out these close games. Um, so, you know, it's it's tough to say whether this is going to be a win for the Red Sox or not. But, you know, on paper, it's like they really overpaid for Kimbrell. Yeah, and that's really the question is, did, did it cost too much? And it's so much fun to go over to our, you know, the other SB Nation site there. Uh, it's uh, overthemonster.com, the Red Sox site, and kind of watch their fan reaction to it. And it seems to be kind of mixed. There's people saying, hallelujah, you know, they fixed the bullpen. Because did you know the Red Sox bullpen was actually worse than the Tigers bullpen in 2015? I was not aware of that. I was. I was doing a little bit of research on that. And the, the the Red Sox and Tigers, you know, they were like 1A and 1B in just about every single um, statistical category there is. And so, you know, they they had a real problem at the back end there. Um, well, Koji Uehara, their closer, was pretty good when he was healthy. Uh, but the rest of that bullpen was just utter crap. So yeah. getting a guy like Kimbrell pushes, you know, one of those bad relievers out and really kind of gives him a, a nasty little one-two punch at the back end of the, that pen. It's just funny that I hadn't picked up on that for all the, you know, comparisons I'd done between the teams and their different components, you know, the offense, defense, and so forth. I knew the Red Sox had a very, very bad starting rotation, but I did not realize just how ugly that, that bullpen was. But now it's kind of funny to me that, you know, as bad as it was, like you said, they they add a super reliever in Craig Kimbrell, and it's almost like, wow, that's gonna that's gonna stand out like a diamond in a pile of pig shit or something. The real problem, though, as a Tigers fan, 
is that now we have to deal with Koji Iwahara in the eighth inning and then Craig Kimbrell in the ninth inning. And you know what Joe Bluth would say about that? Oh, come on! Yeah. <laughs> That's... Well, I think it's funny that you mentioned our, you know, our friends over at Over the Monster, and they're saying a lot of the same things that we used to say when mm-hmm. Dabrowski would make a trade like this. I'm quoting Mark Normandin here of uh, Over the Monster. He says, Dave Dabrowski did not give up on youth or prospects or anything of the sort. He leveraged Boston's depth into acquiring one of the great closers out there, one who will help in the ninth inning and with his presence alone will help improve the quality of Boston's seventh and eighth innings. And he'll do that for three years. Doesn't that sound a lot like, you know, some of the trades we made when we were giving away prospects for, you know, players that we kind of needed? I know it's a little bit different with having a reliever versus, you know, uh, other teams, but yeah, I mean, there's sounds familiar. There are some differences there, like you said, uh, even in the quality of prospects that Boston has to give uh, the, the depth of their system versus the depth of the Tiger system. But yes, I had this very strange feeling reading over the monster and their reaction to the trade and, and thinking to myself, oh, my God, did we sound like that when when Dave was gutting our farm system you know, up and down? And we were all like, ah, that's that's fine. Look, he's bringing back some serious major league talent. It just kind of put me in this weird situation of kind of thinking, do I need to kind of reevaluate the whole Dombrowski era just a little bit? I don't think we do. Um, you know, the Tigers had a lot of success in that in that span. They won four consecutive division titles. They went to the World Series twice. I think the only reason anyone has any sort of regret is because they didn't win a World Series. And I don't think you can really lay that at Dombrowski's feet. No, I, it's not that. And I guess there's there's just so many ways to slice and dice this. And you can say, yeah, Dombrowski was successful. He you know he got us to the playoffs four years in a row and some World Series appearances uh, in 2006 and then 2012. Uh, but at what cost? You know that now we're in the situation where the farm system is shot, and eh, maybe that's just baseball. Maybe that's what you have to do. You have to go for it, push hard, and if you don't happen to win the World Series, that's just pure dumb luck. I don't know. Well, and again, I think that. You know, had we won a World Series, we wouldn't care as much about the farm system being shot. I mean, yeah, we'd be, you know, we would complain about, you know, having all these crappy prospects and the bad team and everything. But, you know, we could be like, oh, at least, you know, remember 2013 when we won it all or or whatever. Um, You know, kind of like the Phillies did, you know, a team that the Tigers compared to a lot. Uh, You know, they're able to look back on that 2008 World Series Hmm. um, pretty fondly. And then they went back in 2009 and lost to the Yankees. It just, it, like I said, it raised some very strange questions for me in terms of looking at Dave Dombrowski and now that there's some distance there and he's with another team. I mean, certainly the first feeling I felt was jealousy. Like, oh, really? He went and got their team a closer? He never got us a closer like that? Wow. But then it was just this very kind of weird feeling of almost like sour grapes, like where I felt like I had to, you know, kind of pick holes in what he did. And I thought, well, that's just a Dombrowski move. That is such a Dave Dombrowski move to go and take a bunch of prospects and overpay for a proven closer please al avila don't don't go that route don't try to buy a super pricey closer you talk about kimbrel being you know looking more human in 2015 how hilarious would it be if he just completely imploded joe nathan style in 2016 and then rob we would know we would know it's not detroit that kills relievers it's dave dombrowski that would be reassuring to have that bullpen curse off our shoulders but uh last i checked boston isn't the one with the joe nathan fat head on their bullpen door uh, all right all right it stings but it's the truth yeah i don't know why they have that up there either that's just why would you i don't know i don't understand going, 
going back to Dombrowski a little bit, mm-hmm. um, I think that you know having some of that distance from him, I don't necessarily want to call it sour grapes, but I think that we're able to kind of pick apart some of his flaws a little bit more, mm-hmm. uh, and especially seeing the difference now with him compared to what Alavila is saying and taking us in this new you know saber heavy direction. You know, we're kind of seeing this and we're like, oh yeah, why didn't we? Why didn't Dave do that? Or why didn't Dave do this? Type of thing. Just like we were talking about in the last segment about you know the bullpen. Uh, you know, and going after good pitchers instead of righty lefty type uh, mm. type players. So, you know, I I think that there's you know both pros and cons to having a guy as talented as Dombrowski leading your organization, but at the same time, you know, the game is changing, and I think that having Avila, you know, we haven't seen much from him yet, but at least having this approach from him may pay off a little bit more than you know having wheeling and dealing Dave atop the organization. It seems funny to me because I know when he first went over to Boston and they held the the initial press conference and they were talking to him about, you know, his uh, view on basically advanced analytics. And I go, yeah, that's right, because the Red Sox, you know, were at least, you know, kind of into they're the ones that hired Bill James, you know, uh, to be a consultant and so forth. And you just kind of wonder how well is Dombrowski going to play with that environment, if that is still even the environment that they that they're in, you know. I'm just speculating, obviously, but you wonder how the rest of the front office views a trade like that, and do they go, Dave, what the hell, you know? Well, I think that, you know, with the Red Sox, it kind of, it's a little bit of a different situation. You know, they hired Bill James. They were kind of a saber-heavy organization when Theo Epstein was in charge, Mm -hmm. and then you see kind of the other side of Theo Epstein when he handed out a lot of these big money contracts. You know, they signed Carl Crawford and Adrian Gonzalez. And were somehow able to wiggle out from under that when, you know, the Los Angeles Dodgers started spending every dollar on earth on their baseball team. Um, You know, had they not been bailed out like that, you know, you'd really, it'd be interesting to see kind of where they would be as an organization at this point. Um, So I think there, you know, there are two sides to to that coin as far as their saber approach and whatnot. And I think that when, you know, when a guy like Dombrowski becomes available, you kind of got to go after him. Um, So I think that, you know, they, they did well from that standpoint, especially given, you know, what their front office was before with Ben Charrington there. They, you know, kind of, I don't necessarily want to say locked into the 2013 world series, but we should have won it. Damn it. Um, (laughs) And so, it's, it'll be interesting to see kind of what type of approach that they take, but, you know, you like to think that there may be a little bit of kind of blending of styles between Dombrowski and the, the Red Sox supposed saber-heavy environment. And if they do have some of that saber-heavy environment still in place, if they still value those things, it, it does kind of, I guess for me, raise the question of, hey, maybe they gave away the right prospects. You know, maybe the rest of us are just kind of saying, oh, wow, you gave away all these you know pieces, but maybe they know something that we don't. And we always kind of question whether Dave had this insider knowledge anyway, because it seemed like he'd do things like trade Doug Fister and Doug Fister would stop being good, or he'd trade Rick Porcello and Rick Porcello would just stop being good. What's going to do it for me is there There were two things that Dave Dombrowski was very good at, and that was picking up big-name talent, which we just saw him do with Craig Kimbrell. The other thing was he seemed to be really good at moving some of these big contracts around, and of course the Prince Fielder contract comes immediately to mind. You wonder, I'm, I'm waiting to see, can he move the Pablo Sandoval contract or the Hanley Ramirez contract, which are both just millstones right now for the Red Sox. Don't trade with Dombrowski, Al. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Well, thankfully, the Tigers don't have the money to pick up contracts like, like what Sandoval's got and what Ramirez, because I think both those guys are getting quite a bit of money right now. 
Yeah, I mean, they both still have, I want to say, like 60, 70 million left on their deals. Mm-hmm. I think they were both under, just under 100 million when they signed, um, but both took, you know, a pretty hefty cut out of that this year and still getting paid quite a bit of money. They're not, you know, the super long six, seven year deals, but still, it's a, it's a lot of money to be given to a couple of very flawed players. Well, we'll see if uh, Trader Dave can work his magic, and I will be watching that development with interest. We'll, we'll see what he can do. Uh, one other big move that, that came through the newswire, and by newswire I mean Twitter, this past week, was that the uh, Los Angeles Angels traded, um, sorry, reverse that, the Atlanta Braves traded Andrelton Simmons, uh, Simmons to the Angels for Eric Ibar and another handful of prospects. Uh, weird trade or not? I thought it was very weird, especially from the Braves' standpoint. You know, they get a couple of good arms from the Angels, um, but they're trading kind of one of their franchise cornerstones, one of the guys that, you know, a lot of Braves fans were going out to watch, a guy that would have been very marketable when they opened their new stadium, I think, in 2017 Mm -hmm. in Cobb County. Um, And, you know, on a fairly team-friendly contract, I think he was getting paid maybe just over $10 million a year. And, you know, that's a guy, you know, his glove is so good that he's going to put up an easy two and a half, three wins just from that alone. Um, so it's, you know, it's really kind of a curious trade from their standpoint. Uh, and, you know, they get a shortstop back in Eric Ibar, but he's only under contract for one year. And then you got to find another shortstop after that. And the, I think the guy that they're relying on the minors, um, you know, is only like 18 years old. So you wonder what he will be. And he's still, you know, a couple years away from the majors as well. So, I mean, they're kind of in a full rebuild right now. And it's just an interesting move from their standpoint. I mean, you can see a little bit more what the angels are trying to do and getting a shortstop of their future, but they just mortgaged the last two prospects that they have in that system. So they're, you know, scraping the very bottom of the barrel now. Right. I mean, they're, they're dry basically at this point. And you can kind of see for the Braves, like you said, it's, it's weird because it's a definite downgrade, at least defensively a shortstop, Eric Ibar, uh, you know, for, for as imperfect as the defensive stats are, when you look at his defensive run saved on fan graphs, he posted negative numbers, I think, every single year, whereas Andrelton Simmons is this defensive wizard who's posting numbers like, you know, 30, 45 defensive runs saved, this kind of thing. And it, it kind of makes sense. The, the Los Angeles Angels were, uh, they were the fourth worst defensive team in the AL West. It seemed to be a big area where they needed to upgrade. It's just funny that on the other side, uh, I think it was Grant Risby that said Andrelton Simmons is uh, glove first, glove second. There's there's no bat. There's really not. Um, but when you have a glove as good as his, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, he is far and away the best defensive shortstop in baseball. Um, you know, he's getting compared to guys like Omar Vizquel and Ozzy Smith. Mm. He's that good. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how his glove ages, for one. I think he's still only in his mid-20s right now. So he's got some time before, I think, any sort of decline starts to set in. Um, but if he ages as well as either of those two guys, you know, this is going to look like, I think, a pretty good deal for the Angels down the road. Uh, it'll kind of depend on, you know, what the Braves can do with the couple pitchers they got. And, you know, that's an organization that's been very good at developing pitchers in the past. Um but, you know, as far if I had to pick a winner in this, I would say the Angels right now, just because they got they got the proven player and it definitely fills a need for them. You know, they have their shortstop for 2017 and beyond, and he's you know good to put up value whether he hits or not. The question immediately related to the Tigers at this point, of course, is are the Tigers ever going to beat the Angels again? I mean, we've always had trouble scoring against the Angels anyway. Uh, now that they have 
you know a, a super defensive wizard at shortstop. They just improved themselves defensively. It's do we do we just forfeit those games now? I mean, we might as well. They'd be more fun to watch if we forfeited. Hmm. You know what happens when you forfeit? I just found this out thanks to my uh, baseball digest crossword. The the score automatically becomes nine nothing. Hmm. Well, we've seen that we've seen that before too. So I I'm not sure if that's actually fewer runs than the Tigers would actually give up if they played the game, but they could just forfeit and take the nine nothing hit. So you know, it's a, it's an option. We have to consider that. One final question before we wrap up the segment: We're only a couple of weeks out now. Jeez, um, next week is Thanksgiving already. Uh, so we're only a couple of weeks away from the winter meetings happening. Do you think the Tigers are going to make a move before that, or do you think Al will kind of wait to see and just kind of make his moves there at the meetings? I don't know. It's tough to say. Um, you know, we don't really know what his track record is going to be for moves yet. Um, you know, just on a whim. I think he signs some random reliever before then, but any sort of big move won't happen until the winter meetings. I'm gonna I'm gonna predict that that he doesn't do anything until until the winter meetings and, and I think our fan base is gonna just darn near explode at that point because people are going crazy. It's so funny to me these some of these Facebook comments that we get on our posts because we're doing you know trade target previews and stuff and trying to keep things interesting and you know put content out there for people to read about the baseball season when it's not even happening and <laughs> get these comments that are like stop reporting on speculative stuff and report real news and I'm like dude. If we could make real news happen, I would totally do it. I wish we had stuff that was actual concrete news to write about, but we don't. We have rumors right now, and so that's what we have to survive on. So we get to write up, you know, fake Jose Fernandez trade rumors. rumors. <laughs> hey, no, there's nothing fake about that. But speaking of segues, I think that'll do it for our warming in the pen segment. And when we come back, we're going to go high and tight and ask the question, what would you give up to get Jose Fernandez? We'll talk about that after the break. A fly ball, center field. This one's deep, going back. Borges at the warning track, looking up, and it's gone—a home run. Amazing! How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at bat of the day. And welcome back from the break. Here we go into the high and tight segment. Rob, what would you give up to get Jose Fernandez? That's the question because we saw a little tweet come out today uh, from a. Well, it was a it was a radio host out of Miami, Sirius XM radio host that uh, was speculating, sort of saying that general feeling is general sentiment is within the Marlins organization that Jose Fernandez, their ace pitcher, will be traded. Uh, that's that's not a real thing, right? Uh, it's tough to say. Um, Joe Frasaro, the Marlins beat writer, I want to say for MLB dot com, um, he said that. You know, quote, two highly placed sources tell me Jose Fernandez is not being shopped or discussed to be shopped. Um, so we'll see exactly what happens. But, hey, trade like that would be fun, right? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> that that raises the question, I guess. Because Jose Fernandez is Jose Fernandez. He's awesome. He's young. He's under team control for, like, several more years. Uh, the Marlins have done stupid things like this in the past. Hello, Miguel Cabrera. Uh, they traded him when he was about the same age that Jose Fernandez is now. It wouldn't be, let's put it this way, I don't know if there's any substance to the rumor, but I would not be the least bit shocked or surprised if they actually did something like that. I wouldn't be either, um, just because, you know, who knows what Jeffrey Loria is thinking a lot of the times with that Marlins franchise. Um, But as far as actually trading for 
Fernandez. I mean, you know, if the Tigers have any sort of shot at it, you think you have to pull the trigger. Uh, I was thinking about it earlier today, and I was like, well, you know, Fernandez is good, but is he, you know, Miguel Cabrera Hall of Famer level good? And then I think about it, and I'm like, you know, Fernandez is doing things that haven't been done since a guy named Dwight Gooden mm-hmm. for the Mets, you know, in 30 years ago. So, you know, he kind of is at that level. And, you know, when you do that, I know that you wrote the post today and kind of pointed out some of the ridiculous rumors that, you know, other teams were turning down when Miguel Cabrera was on the block, you know, almost a decade ago. And, you know, looking back at those now, you're like, you know what, burn the boats, trade everyone. Yeah, that was, and that was, again, courtesy of Grant Brisby, who wrote the post back in 2012. Uh, Grant, of course, writes for SB Nation's uh, San Francisco Giants site, McCovey Chronicles. And uh, I think seeing his Giants take on Miguel Cabrera and the Tigers in the 2012 World Series inspired him to kind of go back and uh, do some research on how it was that Cabrera came to be with Detroit. And that was just a fascinating thing to, to read. Um, some of the names of, of prospects at the time that teams were not willing to let go of Colby Rasmus for the Cardinals. They weren't going to let Colby Rasmus go in exchange for Miguel Cabrera. The Yankees wanted to hold on to Java Chamberlain. Uh, the Indians wanting to hold on to Azrubal Cabrera. The Dodgers are the only ones that make sense because they, they uh, were... Uh, the Marlins, I should say, were, were asking for Clayton Kershaw, who at the time was, was a prospect, and uh, the Dodgers said no. That turned out to be the right move. It's just kind of funny to even look back at that because... If I'm not mistaken, Kershaw, I think, was drafted the same year, the same round as Andrew Miller with the Tigers. The Tigers ended up parting ways with Andrew Miller. Um, the Dodgers held on to Clayton Kershaw. It looks like now in hindsight, the Tigers got rid of the right guy and the Dodgers held on to the right guy. It does. But even then, if you I know, I think Brisby pointed this out, too, that even if the Dodgers were to trade Kershaw and he turns into what he's turned into, you still get a Hall of Fame first baseman in return so it's not exactly that bad of a trade true um you know i think kershaw as far as contract and whatnot works out and obviously he's you know really kind of maintained this high level even if he doesn't win the hardware that he deserves this year um but as far as those other names it's just kind of hilarious you know the red sox decided to hold on to jacoby ellsbury (laughs) the white sox wanted to hold on to john garland of all people (laughs) come on serious. Um, it's it's really just kind of funny to look back at these now and how ridiculous it is no it's a good point though if the dodgers had traded kershaw for cabrera that's kind of a it's a wash it's a zero-sum game at that point you get a hall of famer for who is i'm sure another hall of famer um it's just one of those weird things because uh again going back to the draft when the dodgers got kershaw and the tigers picked andrew miller the tigers actually had the first pick i mean not the first pick but they were prior to the Dodgers they had a pick before the Dodgers Kershaw was still available they went with Andrew Miller instead and I've often wondered what would would have happened had they chosen Clayton Kershaw instead and of course the the downstream effect the butterfly effect there is well in theory they wouldn't have had Andrew Miller to trade for Miguel Cabrera but is that really I mean what do you want which future would you prefer the 2015 where the Tigers have Clayton Kershaw or a 2015 where they have Miguel Cabrera well, there's so many factors that go into that. I mean, you think about the first baseman the Tigers had before Cabrera came in. I mean, they had, what, Sean Casey, Gary Sheffield, you know, guys that were okay. But, you know, then you get this, you know, just behemoth in the middle of your lineup that's able to, you know, be really be a game changer for you for the last decade. And, you know, it's tough to say whether Kershaw becomes Clayton Kershaw if he's drafted by the Tigers and they don't make that trade, um, or even what Andrew Miller becomes if the Tigers don't make that trade and they, you know, properly develop him in their farm system. Um, so it's, you know, there are so many different things there, but you got to think that, you know, just given the way that things have worked out, 
the, the Tigers did the right thing, obviously. Um, and, you know, as far as going back to the draft, you kind of think about it between choosing between Miller and Kershaw. You know, Miller was a great starter in college. I think he came from North Carolina. Mm. And so you know, a proven starter out of, you know, a big time program like that, I think is the safer bet than, you know, a guy like Kershaw who was drafted out of high school. You know, obviously it didn't work out that way, but, you know, it's really, you, people look back at this and say, oh, why didn't they take this guy? Why didn't they take that guy? But you look back at, you know, what they were working with at the time, and it kind of makes sense, the decision that they made. Yeah, and I don't have the, the information in front of me, obviously. I never saw any video of, you know, what Kershaw looked like back at the time. I'm just now sort of picking some of that information up from this book that I'm reading, The Best Team Money Can Buy, and they talk a lot about Kershaw in his early days. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it just could be that Andrew Miller was the hard throwing lefty that looked real good and nobody could, you know, foresee that Kershaw was going to develop that curveball and that slider and, you know, the command that he's developed. So it's just, yeah, but either way, I guess I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't argue with a Clayton Kershaw future with the Tigers and I'm not sorry that they didn't get him and got Cabrera instead. So it's, it's nice to win both ways, either way you go. So. We never answered the question, though. If this Jose Fernandez thing were to become a real thing, if the Marlins were actually going to offload him, is there any anybody in the Tigers system that you would say, nope, I'm hanging on to him, that's the one name that I'm not moving? Would that be Nick Castellanos, maybe, or uh, Daniel Norris, or even go further down, like Kristen Stewart with the Whitecaps? Well, I wouldn't trade Miguel Cabrera, if that's what you're asking. No, 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 young guys. Young guys, and I'm still considering Nick... Castellanos is probably like the the borderline of someone I still consider to be prospect E. I know he's not, but he hasn't fully hit his his full bloom yet. No, there's not one single guy that I would not trade for Jose Fernandez. Now, if you're looking at a package deal, you know, if you're talking Nick Castellanos and Daniel Norris and Michael Fulmer, I might be hesitant. But even then, you still look at some of the names that, you know, the the other teams passed up on trading for Miguel Cabrera, and they're kind of laughable. I think the the um, the Yankees didn't want to trade Jabba Chamberlain or Phil Hughes or Ian Kennedy, and you know those three guys. Now it's kind of funny looking back on this. Uh, you know, it's tough to say. You know, pitchers are I call them evil beings whose elbows just decide to betray them at random times. Um, and so it's you know there's definitely more risk in picking up a guy like. Um, like Jose Fernandez, who has Tommy John on his resume already and has a pretty violent delivery. You know, a lot of people have pointed that out as a, you know, a future injury risk. But at the same time, you know, this is a guy that, you know, he's thrown, I think, just under 300 innings in his career. You know, per 200 innings, he's averaging like 5.4 war. Um, you know, so he's an elite starting pitcher. And if you can get that for you know, a couple guys in your system, if it's, you know, Daniel Norris and some other prospects, I think you got to do it. Yeah, it, you can't tell the future. Like you know, it's it's the Yankees probably had very good reasons for hanging on to a prospect like Jabba Chamberlain, and yet you know, or or Ian Kennedy or Phil Hughes, and yet none of those guys you know really panned out in terms of. I think they would take the Yankees would happily take Cabrera now, you know, given the deal over again. You just don't know. So it's you know, you could you could say yeah, I would trade just about anybody, uh, you know, to get Jose Fernandez. Um, or not, you could say I would hold on to a Daniel Norris or a Nick Castellanos as a part of a package deal, especially, and then have these guys just not even. Daniel Norris could be the next Jabba Chamberlain, is what I'm getting at. You could look back years later and go, "Ugh, why did we hang on to that guy?" Yeah, he could, but he could also go the other way, and I don't necessarily want to say he'll be the next Clayton Kershaw, but he could be, you know, another great starter 
for them too. You know, he has the stuff to do it. He's shown flashes of that himself. Um, so it's tough to say exactly what, you know, what, what would happen with that. Um, you know, I think that if the Tigers were to give up, you know, Norris and some of the lower level prospects, you know, anyone like a Kristen Stewart or whatnot, I would definitely pull the trigger on something like that, even though Norris has more years of team control left, uh, than Jose Fernandez does. Um, I think that, you know, which is with the level that Fernandez is at now, I think that that is more valuable than what Norris could be down the road when you're getting towards the tail end of the primes of, you know, Miguel Cabrera, Justin Verlander, and some of the other guys on the roster now. And I think I will go on record as saying, honestly, I mean, Jose Fernandez is awesome, right? But I I would not be comfortable with the trade like that just because some of the injury issues that are there. He did have Tommy John just last year, and that was only his second you know, full full year in the majors. Uh, he comes back in 2015. He missed half the season and then almost immediately had to go back out to the disabled list with a, a bicep strain. And so it just seems like uh, with a, for only three more years of control, and then he's going to want all kinds of money. And Scott uh, Boris is his agent. Oh, so. that's right. Boris is the agent. No, I don't think I would actually... I would happily risk uh, losing out on Jose Fernandez, even if he is freaking awesome for years to come. It's it's probably not worth the risk for the Tigers. I hate to say it, because the whole point of Grant Brisby's post was you have to go for the trade. When a trade like that comes along, it's once in a lifetime. You burn everything. You sell. You do what you have to do to get that. And here I am saying, nah, I wouldn't do it. Eh, whatever. So anyway, the uh, the other bit of news that came through, uh, this this past week, uh, looks like Major League Baseball is talking about revamping some of their rules. Joe Torre, who is uh, MLB's chief baseball officer, uh, said that they will be talking at the winter meetings about whether it's time to do something about takeout slides. And I, I can only assume that what they mean by that is that they're going to... Um, well, the rule is already on the books, so it'd just be a matter of enforcing the rule and basically saying that uh, runners heading into second, third, whatever, need to slide directly into the base and are not allowed to go outside the base paths. Um, boy, that, that would that would change an awful lot of things, though, wouldn't it, if they start enforcing that rule? It really would. Um, you know, takeout slides would go by the wayside, you know, and I think you had mentioned the neighborhood play yeah. earlier on and that, you know, kind of what they would review. And I feel like they would review anything and everything, and that would be annoying in itself. Um, you know, you definitely get – you're, you know, definitely emphasizing the safety of the players, which is good, but – at the same time, I think there's like a better line to be drawn than just players have to slide directly into the base. I think that, you know, if baseball is going to do something about these takeout slides, they just kind of need to re reinforce some of the rules that are already on the books and, you know, maybe more emphasize, you know, the fact that, you know, guys shouldn't be sliding late, should be sliding within arm's length of the bag, that type of thing, as opposed to going directly to the base and really kind of giving the fielders free reign of everything and not giving teams a chance to break up a double play. Yeah, it certainly would, I think, increase the number of uh, replay reviews that happen because you look back to what happened when MLB kind of enforced the home plate collision thing, you know, saying catchers can't block the plate until they have possession of the ball and this sort of thing. You see a lot of the, of managers challenging based on that, uh, you know, saying, hey, it looked like the catcher was blocking on that play. We want to review that because there's a potential, you know, run versus an out. I think the rule on the books in terms of the takeout slide, I believe what it says right now is that if the if the runner has been judged to have gone outside the base paths, you know, if it's ruled a, a, a dirty slide, basically, uh, I believe he is out, as is the batter. So now you're talking about a potential 
instant double play, I can just see managers going out and challenging every freaking slide on a on a, a double a potential double play in second base. Well, we had that. I think it was like a couple of years ago when they had just started implementing replay, and it was remember like when you know they said that you know anytime a fielder is trying to transfer the ball from his glove to his hand yes. and he dropped it and then that wasn't considered an out because they didn't complete the catch or whatever and then you know there's this big thing and I think it only lasted for about a month right until baseball changed it back because every play was being reviewed um, and I think that would be kind of similar to that uh, and then at that point you almost kind of wonder you know is replay really worth it to have you know this many stoppages in the game right yeah it, it doesn't seem like it should be this difficult I mean really there, there should be some kind of a middle ground where you say uh, you know, look, the infielder can still do the neighborhood play so that he's got some more wiggle room and uh, um, evasive maneuver capability there. And at the same time, it, I mean, really, you can't tell the difference between a clean, a clean, dirty slide, if that makes sense, versus a dirty, dirty slide. You really can't tell the difference. I, I think that should be easier than what they're making it. I think it does, too. I mean, you can kind of see it i mean it, you know you hate to just bring the eye test into it but there are you know some plays where you go oh and you know that's a dirty slide whereas other ones you know if it's you know just kind of a hard play it's you know it sounds stupid when you phrase it like that but you know anyone you know who has watched you know a fair number of games you kind of get a feel for you know what is okay and what's not and you know and it also kind of is based on the flow of the game as well uh and i think that the umpires should be able to should be able to determine that. I think they just need to put a little bit more emphasis on that rule. Yeah, agreed. Like I said, I don't think it should be as difficult as they're as they're making it. When the runner comes down to second slides and actually pulls out a loaded weapon, that's obviously there. You go. Just you can't do that. You can't shoot the players as you're coming in. Or it, as I've said on Twitter before, if they're going to let the runner go ahead and do a nasty takeout slide, they should they should give the uh, the fielder the option of like doing a knee slam when he comes back down. You know fight back fight dirty more violence more 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 no it's not time for the football interview just yet so we'll leave that where it is uh, another thing that Tory, uh, Joe Torrey had talked about uh, in this uh, statement that he made was that they're talking about uh, let me get the quote here momentum from managers there, there was momentum from managers to change replay rules to prevent a base runner who slides into a base ahead of a throw from being called out when his body loses contact with the base for an instant. And I know exactly what they're, what they're talking about. When you get uh, someone like Rajay Davis comes, you know, sliding into second base headfirst like he always does, he always ends up going over the base. And there may be just that fraction of a second where his body has lost contact with the bag while maybe while his torso is, is going over the base or something along those lines. And they go back and they review it. And yep, there was that fraction of a second when the tag was still on you, your body came off the base and now you're out. Is it maybe time to just stop with that? I think it definitely is. Um, you know, part of it is, I think that, you know, a lot of announcers had mentioned kind of the spirit of the rule mm -hmm. um, and then that sort of review violated that. I also think there were just too damn many of those. You know, it seemed like every game there were a couple of those types of reviews, and that was really like what consisted the bulk of some of these replay reviews, as opposed to actual plays that the umpires blew. Uh, and it really just kind of got tedious at the time. You know, they'd spend three, four, five minutes looking at this frame by frame to see if, you know, is his left pinky toe uh, still on the base or is it off and whatnot. And you know, it was really just kind of annoying. You know, if the guy beats the ball to the bag, you know, he beats the tag there. I think that should kind of be it. Wasn't there one of those, I want to say there was one of those in the playoffs with like Houston, maybe. I, I'm blanking. I now. can't it remember. It seems like there was, I, I can almost see it in my head. The guy was sliding into third 
and had that situation where his body lost contact, which is just, it's so silly because it's like the hand gets in, it's got contact, but then it passes over. Now the torso is over the bag, but not touching it. And then a split second later, the knee connects, you know, you kind of like watch this frame by frame and all the different moving parts. And yeah, I want to say that became a controversy in one of the division series games and it cost them a runner at third, but I could be way off base on that. Yeah, and I think that there's kind of a difference there. You know, you mentioned that where the guy comes off the base for a split second. You know, if if someone totally prints fielders a slide and he's, you know, two feet away from the base and gets tagged mm-hmm. out, yeah, obviously he should be out. And if, you know, the umpire blows that, then it's on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, something like that where it's just, you know, just a fraction of a second, they're just barely off the bag. I, I just don't think that there's, you know, there's a need for that. Yeah, I, I agree. It's just getting a little bit silly, some of these things. Uh, I guess the question, Rob, is is instant replay even really helping the game? It seems like we had an awful lot of situations in 2015 where, uh, doggone it, they got the call wrong anyway, even after the review. And yet there's times when it's really seemed to have helped. I mean, I think it has. You know, you go back to, you know, something like in 2014 where the Tigers were able to review that fly ball against the Royals where Salvador Perez or someone, I think, left third base early. And that actually ended up being, you know, kind of a big turning point in the game and in the season for them. And they go on to win the division by one game. So, you know, I think that it has it has helped. I think there are still things they can do to improve it, you know, such as limiting the time for replays. You know, if you can't figure it out in two minutes, just leave the call as was. You know, if you have to look at it frame by frame by frame, I think you can just leave it at the call on the field. Um, And so speeding up that process would be nice, as well as, you know, kind of eliminating some of these more tedious reviews that we've mentioned. I think that that would... You know, if you can kind of streamline the process a little bit, I think that it will definitely be a plus overall. Yeah, and oddly enough, that was something else that Joe Torrey mentioned, uh, that overall in 2015, the uh, pace of play has picked up. The, the average time of games has gone down despite all the all the replays. So oh yeah, what do you even make of that? Well, I think that that has to do more with, you know, kind of the, the emphasis of, on, you know, keeping guys in the batter's box and yeah. whatnot just kind of speeding up the game from that standpoint. And I think that if you can cut down some of these replays, you know, you may not see a huge difference in times per game, but it'll definitely feel faster. And I think that's what's more important than the actual time of the game. Well, it's all supposed to take place at the winter meetings. They're going to be talking over this as, I guess, general managers, I guess, are the ones that are going to make those decisions with the other various grand poobai of Major League Baseball. So one more thing to, to look forward to in December, maybe some, some rule changes or just some different emphasis on, on the rules that are already there. Okay, I think we will uh, wrap this up for the High and Tight segment. When we come back, we'll take our listener questions into the mob scene at home and uh, talk about the fact that Jose Iglesias will not be traded until he is. More on that when we get back. Swing the fly ball, left field, deep, going back, Cabrera, looking up, and it's gone, a home run! James McCann with the walk-off winner, number three, rounding third, exchanges the low ten with Dave Clark, and into the hot scene at home. And here we go, into the mob scene at home, taking our listener questions. Uh, We kind of experimented with a new format this week, taking the questions via the website. I think that worked out really, really well. I think so, too. We got some pretty good ones. Yeah, we got more questions than we even knew what to do with. So, uh, yeah, awesome stuff. I think we might stick with that format. Let you, uh, as listeners, just leave your questions on, uh, on the 
post on the website. But of course, you can still reach us in the usual ways. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at hookslidebyb. Rob is at bybrob. And then we're on Gmail at uh, bybtigers at gmail.com. So let's get to it. Uh, we'll start with oh, our good friend Meg. Meg Rowley at Meg Growler. Uh, writer for Lookout Landing, SB Nation's Seattle Mariners site, asks, oh, fun question too, what is your favorite Joaquin Benoit memory, and how will you feel if, if you lose to the Mariners on a Benoit long relief appearance? Now, of course, she's asking this because uh, Joaquin Benoit has uh, signed a contract with the Seattle Mariners. I, I'm not sure I appreciate the question. I mean, I'm okay with it. Uh, you know, I was kind of struggling to think with, think of, you know, a specific Benoit appearance. That no, I just mean the part memorable. about how do you feel if you lose to the Mariners on a long relief appearance? I mean, I mean, we always lose a random game to the Mariners every year, anyway. That's so just it's downright not, hostile, though. A little bit. Uh, all right, but you know Go they'll on. be in fourth. They'll be in fourth place again next year. So, <laughs> ouch. Um, you know, as far as a you know a specific appearance, I'm struggling to think of a positive one that I can remember. Um, but I do remember there were a couple times. I remember one time when he was kind of campaigning for himself for the All Star game, you know, with like the little sign in the dugout and you know huge grin on his face. That was funny. There's also like a random gif of him, you know, after I think it was like a Miguel Cabrera walk off home run where he's like peering through the fence in the dugout and he's got this like Mel uh, or uh, you know Jack Nicholson smile from The Shining on his face. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it was both terrifying and amazing. And I say those are the things that stick with me more than, you know, any actual, you know, save or appearance that he had on the sure. mound. See if you can find the gif of this and maybe put it on the podcast post. But there was the one time when he was sitting in the bullpen just sort of doing nothing. It was like the seventh inning or something. And the camera caught him doing this weird little goofy dance with his hands in his jacket pocket. He was doing this like little wiggle thing. Do you remember that? I mean, I probably made that gift, so... You probably did. Uh, it seems like we've got it floating around somewhere. We'll have to see if we can include that. But, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you on... I don't remember a specific game. It's more of a general memory of when he took over as the closer in June of, of 2013. And I was looking at some stats today to kind of refresh my memory on what he did. Uh, but when he pitched as closer for Detroit, he posted a 2.19 ERA uh, with a whip of 1.018. Uh, 9.2 strikeouts per nine. He was striking everybody out uh, in that closer role, and opponents were only hitting 197 against him. So I guess more generally speaking, I remember that that sick Vulcan change that he used to throw, or probably still does throw. It just seems to me that there were an awful lot of games that ended with him striking out the two or three final batters of the inning. So that's just, it's a fun thing to look forward to if you're a Mariners fan. Uh, Assuming he's still got the goods. I haven't watched him pitch in a couple of years now, but uh, that's definitely something to look forward to. So, I just found the gif of him doing it, and it's an amazing little dance here. Another kind of <laughs> fun little fact of this is that there's a graphic that pops up during it that says Joaquin Benoit, 9 for 9 saves. And I think that that kind of just underlies exactly what type of pitcher he was you know not exactly memorable when he was on the mound he didn't do anything you know crazy out there but he was always very good very solid pitcher you know what i just remembered it was the zit incident do you remember that he had a he had a zit on his forehead or on his cheek or something and he came out to pitch with this giant ass band-aid on his face because he was embarrassed and the umpire made him take it off because he suspected that. that he had i don't know goop under it or something and he was like 
crap. I had to take this off and reveal my blemish to everybody. That was a... It was a pretty big zip. It was. That was some nasty, nasty, like, adolescent... Uh, yeah. Yep. Have fun with, with Joaquin Benoit. I wouldn't mind seeing him come back to Detroit, but we'll have to enjoy him vicariously uh, through the Mariners. Uh, from the website, Orden Rot says, Considering the Andrelton Simmons trade, should we trade Jose Iglesias? If so, what kind of return can we expect? I think that there's a big difference between, you know, what Simmons was able to fetch and what Iglesias was. Um, you know, the the Braves were able to get two of the, of the uh, Angels, two, their two very best pitching prospects, you know, a couple guys who could end up being, you know, solid mid-rotation starters. But then you look at Jose Iglesias, you know, and he's missed a year with stress fractures, Um he doesn't necessarily have some of the power upside that Simmons does, and he's not as good defensively as Simmons is. So, you know, you've got kind of this, I mean, I guess just kind of an inferior player overall, you know, depending on how much you buy Jose Iglesias' uh, 300 season this year. Um, and he has fewer years of team control left. He's only under control, I believe, for three more years before he hits free agency. And Scott Boris is his agent, too. So he's not, you know, signing a, an extension with anyone before free agency either. So I think that the the return for Iglesias would definitely be much, much lower than what Simmons got. Uh, and when you consider, you know, both the, you know, kind of the middling return as well as the, a real big unknown in Dixon Machado. I know a lot of people have been kind of high on him, but I'm still not sold that he's, you know, good enough to be a full-time starter at the major league level. And I just, I don't know if trading Iglesias is the best idea. Yeah, I I wouldn't want to see him go uh, for those reasons that you're talking about. That when I think of him in comparison to Andrelton uh, Simmons, I, I kind of think he's Andrelton Simmons light. Uh, he does have a little bit, I think, better bat than Simmons at this point. But like you said, that it remains to be seen whether he can repeat his 2015 season and hit over 300. Uh, you know, at any point in that season. So, yeah, his his defensive wizardry is great. It may not be as good as Simmons, but it's still pretty damn good. I would think, though, that, I mean, what are you going to get for him? A couple of not even top 10 prospects? And for what? I, I just don't know. I, I might be more inclined to say yes if you're going to get MLB-ready talent. Uh, a starting pitcher, perhaps, you know, or a, I don't know, an outfielder or something for, for Iglesias. But it would have to be uh, a pretty good one on one for one return mm -hmm. and if you can get someone to overpay for him yeah that'd be great but mm -hmm. i just don't know if anyone's going to overpay for someone like iglesias with his you know his you know kind of long injury history you know he was banged up a few times this year as well yeah it's a very good point I, so let's just hang on to iglesias for now unless somebody wants to give us some huge return for it maybe fix left field in the process i suppose if you get a good enough outfielder in terms of run production that can make up for not only you know the left field spot, but also kind of pick up the slack where Machado might fail, then yeah, you, you go for it, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, moving on, Dark Frontier asks, if you were Alavila and the Mets offered you Matt Harvey for J.D. Martinez, would you do it? See, I really kind of thought about this one for a little while. Um, you know, there are two sides to this. For one, Harvey is very, very, very good, and also under an extra year of team control compared to Martinez, so you get an extra year out of him. But at the same time, pitchers are injury-prone to the max. Uh, you have Harvey, who has already missed a year with Tommy John surgery. Um, once again, Scott Boris's name creeps in, so you're not going to sign him to an extension, whereas you could probably do that with Martinez. Um, 
but he is, you know, he's an ace level pitcher, you know, a guy that can go out and give you 200 innings with, you know, 200, 250 strikeouts, that type of thing. And he's, you know, got the world in front of him as far as what he can do on the mound. So it's tough to say. I, I don't know. I would try to sign Martinez to an extension first before I kind of responded to that trade. And if you can't agree on, you know, something fairly team friendly with him, I might pull the trigger on that. Yeah, I, I suppose there's probably a calculation out there. There's probably some mathematical way to solve this with numbers and say, oh, there it is. It makes sense. You gain more with Harvey or you lose, you know, lose out if you trade J.D. Martinez. But let, let, let's face it. People aren't listening to this podcast to hear me do math. You want to hear a hot take, right? So the hot take is, I think that just screws everything up. You, you bring in Matt Harvey. Yes, that helps you with a, with a rotation problem. You get a, a better pitcher in your starting rotation but at the same time you lose one of the top what two three run producers in the lineup at that point so all you've done then is create a void somewhere else and now you've got to go find yourself someone who can I mean good lord look at what JD Martinez did this year I I just think it's going to be a lot easier to solve the pitching problem through a combination of maybe mid-level starters and good bullpen help than it would be to replace J.D. Martinez in his run production. And, and for that matter, his defense. He won an award, did he not? Um, did he win a gold glove? That's what I'm, I'm blanking. I can't recall if it was the gold glove or if it was one of those... Uh... He did not win the Fielding Bible. I was taking a look at that. Um, I don't think he won a gold glove either. He won a silver slugger. Okay. It's that he was he was up for discussion, though. He was yeah. in the running I think he was a, a finalist. Glove. Yes, he was a mm-hmm. finalist for the Gold Glove, and so that's even if he didn't win it, you still say, "Wow, you got a Gold Glove finalist for a right fielder that almost hit forty home runs this year." Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and try and solve that starting pitching problem a different way than to trade for Matt Harvey. Well, I think they're you know with a few more starting pitchers available this year. You know, I was kind of answering that question more in a vacuum. Yeah. I think if you bring it into context of this off season. Uh, then you're kind of looking more towards keeping Martinez, just because you know there aren't as many hitters on the market you know the guys that are available are going to be making over 20 million dollars a year none of them is really kind of a slam dunk sign um the way that martinez would be you know you've got you know guys like cespedes who doesn't walk justin upton who is streaky as all get out alex gordon's getting old jason hayward isn't really hitting for power uh you know those are the top guys in the market and even they still have you know some fairly big question marks Hmm. whereas you know martinez i think he answered a lot of those questions in 2015 and this doesn't even get to the question of I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I don't know, but how much is even left on Matt Harvey's contract? How many years would the Tigers be responsible for that contract? Those are all things, too, that I think, you know, J.D. Martinez is fairly cheap for the production that they're getting out of him. He's incredibly cheap. And so you could really lose out, you know, in that direction as well. And like you said, he's Matt Harvey's a Boris client. I don't want anything to do with Scott Boris. I, I think baseball should ban him. Well, we have a Scott Boris client on the roster already. I know. We have two of them, don't we? Yeah. Andrew Romine. Yes. Superstar. Andrew Romine and Jose Iglesias are both mm-hmm. represented by Boris. So, But, you know, we got it down to two, so I don't really want to take on any more of those. Although, just for the hell of it, you talked about doing this in context with the 2016 um, you know, free agent pool. We've also talked about the fact that next year, there's no pitching available. So... I don't know. Maybe you could make an argument that, yeah, you want to get a Matt Harvey. Again, this depends on how many more years are left on the contract. If it's two, then I don't know if that's worth it, but whatever. I think he has three years left. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, it, he's a free agent for 2018. You could probably make an argument that it might be smart to lock down a pitcher just because next year is going to be. There's there's no pitchers available in free agency next year, so the Tigers need to solve their pitching problems in the long term this year. So, uh, Slugonauts asks, is this the season the Tigers? Sorry, is this the off season the Tigers finally spend some serious money in the international free agent market? It's tough to say whether they will or not. Um, you know, something like that. I don't necessarily know if that's Dave Dombrowski's strategy that the Tigers haven't spent in that market. In recent years, that may be more of a Mike Illich mandate in that he says, you know, I want to invest the money in the major league club and not necessarily in the international market. Uh, the Tigers haven't made much headway as far as, you know, developing more, you know, academies or whatever they do for, um, you know, players in, you know, the Latin American, South American countries. Um, the way that they have, you know, as far as, you know, hiring more sabermetric analysts, hiring more major league scouts, things like that. So it's tough to say whether they will or not. You know, they haven't made much of a splash yet, and there are still guys available. Uh, I think we'll have to wait, you know, probably all the way until, you know, early July next year. I believe July 2nd is kind of the day where all these players start to sign, and, you know, you see a lot of the guys fly off the board very quickly then. So we'll see, you know, we'll have to wait a long time to really know, I think, what their strategy is going to be. Well, let me ask this question because I don't know as much about the international market, but wasn't Miguel Cabrera in that market when they first found him in the Marlins? He was. Uh, you know, a lot of the Latin American players in Major League Baseball today come okay. from, you know, some of those signings, you know, and going back, you know, some of these guys, you know, they sign so young. These guys sign at like 16, 17 years old. Right. So going back to then, it's tough to say, you know, kind of what an applicable signing bonus would be. For some of these guys, because, you know, some of the top guys now, they're getting, you know, a million dollars, two million dollars for a signing bonus. And then they go into the minor leagues under the same salary structure. It's just that the signing bonus for them is a little bit bigger than, you know, the guys that come out of the draft. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see exactly what they do. But, you know, as far as equating them to some of the guys that have come up, you know, before, I I think that, you know, it's tough to do that, both because we don't know what the money was like back then, as well as I think that. You know these, the air, the edges on the map are getting filled in a bit more as teams invest more in the international free agent market. There are fewer gems hidden, I think, and you know everyone's kind of seeing all these guys, and you get there are less mysteries. Sure, the reason why I was asking that though is just simply because uh, I know Al Avila had a lot to do with the Miguel Cabrera signing, probably more so than Dave Dombrowski did, and so you, you, just a kind of a question I have, I guess. Um, Maybe that's something that Alavila is a little more into. Like you said, I don't know if that was a Dombrowski strategy or, or what, but it's just something to consider that maybe that was more Alavila's thing. And now that he's got control of the general manager spot, maybe you see a little bit more of that. The other, I mean, issue there is whenever I see somebody ask a question about the Tigers spending quote unquote serious money, I mean, I keep going back to they, they don't have serious money right now. That's, um, of course, maybe. I don't know. Does the uh, did that come out of two different two different budgets? It does come out of two different budgets. So that's kind of why I'm wondering if that's more of an you know Mike Illich mandate that yeah. he says we're going to spend the money here and not here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some interesting points. I I don't know why they haven't been in the international free agent market as much. Um, so it's just it's really hard to say. I guess we'll give it a couple of years and find out. Another question comes in from uh, either. Jaja Bojangles or Haha Bojangles or Haha Bohangles? 
I don't know. The question is, uh, do Tyler Clippard's poor secondary stats hurt his status as a free agent? I think they do a little bit. Um, you know, he's had years like this before. For instance, this season he had a 2.92 ERA, but his FIP, fielding independent pitching, was 4.28. Uh, you know, a couple years ago he had kind of a big discrepancy there as well. So it's tough to say whether or not teams would be, you know, as interested in signing a guy like that coming off of, you know, what kind of a poor season as far as the secondary numbers go. Um, but, you know, you look at something like his strikeout rate, it was definitely down this year. He had his highest walk rate in, I think, like four or five years this season as well. And he gave up more home runs than usual. I mean, he's a fly ball pitcher, so he's going to give up a lot of fly balls. He's going to give up a lot of home runs. Um, but, you know, you look at some of these other things, you know, I'd have to take a look, you know, kind of at his velocity and whatnot to see, um, to see exactly how he fared, but, you know, you get a guy like that, and, you know, with the way he kind of finished the season, he kind of struggled down the stretch. He definitely struggled in the postseason a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see if that knocks some money off of his uh, his eventual contract. Yeah, some of those secondary numbers aren't pretty. When you're talking about, like, the strikeout-to-walk ratio being at about two, um, looks like it got a little bit worse. Sorry, better. It got a little better when he went uh, to the Mets from the A's. Um, but I guess that the question is, does that hurt his status as a free agent that I mean that really depends on how much value the team in question puts on these kinds of analytics you know and I, that I don't know it's probably a different scenario from team to team if we're talking about the Tigers specifically I would imagine that they are paying attention to the secondary statistics and they're going to look at those uh, you know as as predictive numbers and try to decide you know does that say something about this pitcher's performance in the future so yeah, I, I'm going to go with yes. Makes sense. I'd, I'd still take him. Okay. <laughs> Going down the same avenue of relief pitchers, uh, the Roars of Summer asks, should the Tigers go after Ken Giles of the Phillies? Well, for those that don't know, Ken Giles is the, uh, he's now the closer of the Philadelphia Phillies. He was kind of the eighth inning guy when Jonathan Papelbon was there. He has a huge fastball, throws about 100 miles an hour. He had a 1.80 ERA and struck out 11 batters per nine innings in 2015. So he's very good. He's also very young. I believe he's only uh, 25 right now and has several years of club control remaining. Because of that, I think he would just be a little bit too expensive. And, you know, that's a guy... You know, he's not he's making the major league minimum right now or just above that. Um, and so there's not a lot of incentive for the Phillies to trade him right now unless they really kind of get blown away with an offer. And I don't know that the Tigers need to blow anyone away with an offer for a relief pitcher at this point. Agreed on all points. These numbers are really, really pretty, um, especially that 11.2 strikeout per nine rate and, and that 2.13 FIP. That's that's nice. Nice to have a young guy who's throwing that well uh, to have to get it cheaply um you know and for that many years under team control but like you said uh what what is that going to end up costing the tigers in return i think there are probably better ways to solve the bullpen problem of course if the phillies are going to be ridiculous and want to just hand ken giles over for chump change then yeah absolutely take him but i'm not sure that that's uh realistic thinking so uh, thanks again for all the questions. We always love to interact with you guys. Again, you can reach us uh, through the website. You can get us on Twitter at HookslideBYB, at BYBRob, or on email BYBTigers at gmail.com. Let's wrap this up, and uh, we'll finish the show out with our seventh inning kvetch. We're going to be talking about the fact that the Lions and the Tigers are the same, but different. More on that when we get back from the break. 3-0, here's the 2-2. 
Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh. And Victor got tossed. And welcome back from the break as we wrap up the podcast with our seventh inning Kvetch segment. I'm sure a bunch of our listeners are about to tune out and throw their listening devices out the window because why is there football in my baseball podcast? But we're going to do a little healthy blending and integration of the topics as we chat today with our SB Nation cousin, Chris Lemieux. Chris is a staff writer and the podcast master over at prideofdetroit.com. That's SB Nation's Detroit Lions blog. You can find Chris's stuff there or on Twitter at Malkovich Plan. Chris, thanks for stopping by. That that Twitter might change soon. People have been asking me to change it, and I regularly throw it out for people to do it. It might be nice post, Sean. It might not. Who knows? You'll find my name attached to everything. If we are cousins, this is uh, fantastic. I didn't know we were cousins. Well, kind of. I mean, we're all, we all run in the uh, SB Nation mothership, so. Yep. Is, is there a barbecue we can go to? Are we just kind of, you know... Stopping up the, the, the barbecue and brown liquor? No? I, I think at Rob's house, it's a perpetual barbecue, so. Mm. Well, we're cousins, and who's who's the uncle that gets, like, inappropriately drunk at the family reunion? That would probably be, uh, I don't want to smear his name, but Brian Packey, who <laughs> kind of does, <laughs> he does, like, that Freight Bad Boys stuff and, and Lions picks, so. Okay. There's a lot of names running through my head right now, but I'll I'll, I'll behave myself. So. Yeah, Sean Ewell isn't with Pride of Detroit anymore, so I can't really use him. And Jeremy Reisman's too young to be an uncle. <laughs> Chris, thanks for stopping by. We wanted to sure. talk a little bit about uh, both the Tigers and the Lions. And uh, I know a lot of our listening audience is, is belongs to that group of people that is like, anti-everything except baseball, so we're going to try and keep it a little bit blended for their sake. Sure, sure. I mean, I'm all for Detroit sports. Are we actually getting Jose Fernandez? Is that going to happen? Yeah, that's totally going to happen. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> that would be amazing. Fleece the Marlins again. Right, and the Lions are going to get Tom Brady, I'm sure. It's, it's, <laughs> it's all in the works. But one of the things that I noticed, Chris, as I was kind of prepping for this for this show is all these similarities between the Lions and the Tigers in 2015. I started counting this up. Number one, you've got both teams fired their general managers in the middle of the season, but inexplicably, both teams kept their head coach slash manager, Jim Caldwell, in the case of the Lions, Brad Osmus in the case of the Tigers. Both teams have aging billionaire owners who have never really won the big trophy, both teams were out of contention by the halfway point in the season after having really high hopes earlier in the year. Both teams have a head coach slash manager who the fans are kind of worried are going to perform just well enough to get a contract extension. It remains to be seen yet if Jim Caldwell will be back in 2016. Brad Osmus is coming back in 2016. And then uh, one last little fun fact. Both teams had or have non-losing records in their own division despite being in last place and losing against everyone else. The Tigers actually had a winning record in their division. The Lions are currently, I think, playing at 500. They're 2-2 two and two against teams in their own division. Uh, does this mean that there's either hope for the Lions or does this mean the Tigers are sunk? This is very similar. Also very similar, we have, I mean, it is a salary cap sport, the NFL, but there is a lot of money tied up in the superstars. A lot of money for the Lions right now is tied up in Calvin Johnson, a.k.a. Megatron, and Matthew Stafford, much as for the for the Tigers, it's Verlander, it's Cabrera, it's, yeah, the money's with those guys. 
And yeah, Martha Ford kind of actually, this is like the first time we got to see her. So uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would say to the, just as a point, I don't think Caldwell comes back in the NFL. I don't know how it is for baseball. Uh, no GM comes in without wanting his own coach. Hmm. So that's kind of a bad sign for Caldwell. It's also bad that no Lions head coach has gotten another head coaching gig in the NFL since 1957. And yeah, we thought Brad Oskis was for sure gone, and guess what? He's not. Yeah, that was that was terrifying to me. And yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the uh, similarity there with Dombrowski and Mayhew. Although I would say those those two were fired for very different reasons. Oh yes, because like DD was like selling at the deadline, and Mayhew was like, "No, I, I want to buy at the deadline. We want to get better." <laughs> and all he does is like sign some guy who's on the practice squad for like two seconds who one of the beat writers today described as basically having a cup of coffee in Detroit before moving back out somewhere else. And he's gone. So it's, it was actually, it's, yeah, it's, I don't know what to do right now. This is Detroit sports. It's fascinating and destructive at the same time. I've been kind of going around this Lions season with like, like an imp. I've mm-hmm. been kind of dancing through the fires and everything. I've been uh, elated with the Green Bay win, which hasn't been done in 24 years, I'm trying to find a comparable for the Tigers that doesn't involve the uh, uh, that would World be, Series. That would be the Los Angeles Angels, who have beaten the Tigers up every single time they play. We, we, I don't Is know, it really that bad? Oh, there's like wow. a, I think they beat them once this year. They did win a couple, but I think over the last 20 years or so, the Tigers have this horrible losing record against the Angels. Man, for some reason, it's, it's bad. Weird. It's like five, angels of all, five or something like, like that. Like, the Angels were never that good. Like, up until recently, the Angels just weren't that good either. So Yeah, and the other yeah. similarity there is that you were saying that the Lions haven't beaten the Packers at home, at the Packers' at home. Lambeau, at Lambeau. At Lambeau Field. Lambeau Field. Yeah. It's the same thing with the, with the Los Angeles Angels. The Tigers just cannot win at Anaheim Stadium. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, well, we finally did. The Lions finally did. It took a... a uh, not to get too football-y for you, but it took a field goal kicker. It took a kicker to just completely shank on a field goal, and suddenly we're talking completely different story today on Monday than we would otherwise. And it's still not enough for people. I've been going around with the hashtag, all caps, Lions football. It basically means it encapsulates a lot of things. It could even work for other sports. It's basically the idea that you do something really good, and everyone's happy for about five seconds, and then it's immediately followed up with a foul, malicious act where you're just like, why are you so dumb to do this? And then it doesn't matter what happens with the good stuff. Everyone just focuses on the bad stuff. And that's kind of what happened after the game. Lions win, first time 24 years, but people are like, well, now we don't have, we're not in position for the first overall draft pick. Exactly. And I was going to point out another similarity there because you get to a certain <laughs> point in the Tigers season. Rob and I talked about this on the podcast week after week after week, just saying, guys, you're out of contention now, so just lose. Just lose and get as high of a draft right. pick as you possibly can. And I was seeing on Lions Twitter on Sunday the same kind of sentiment, like they're actually going to win. This is the first time in 20-some-odd years since they've won at Lambeau Field. And people are ticked. Well, I see. I I don't really. And this is a bigger sports thing, right? It's the whole question of what does tanking earn you? And I know the draft is becoming more and more important for baseball. I am a Tigers fan. I am sitting here. I rushed to throw on my oversized Cabrera jersey because I needed to to when I was doing this. When I heard Jeff was coming on, bless you boys. I'm like, oh, no, I've got to dress the part. But and you see this and I put it on my Lions jersey. Yeah, you put on your. Is that a jersey? That's a hoodie. It's a hoodie. Okay. Yeah. But 
this whole idea of tanking and trying to min-max the game of what it is to draft. And, you know, I'm a basketball fan, too. There's a lot of stuff that's being said in the NBA about what the 76ers do in Philadelphia, where they basically try, like, like put out a roster that's designed to lose every night. And there's a big question about, like, okay, we get that for the long haul. Like, if you're, if you're playing this game like you would, like, a game of risk, okay, that makes sense if you believe in the future, but A, the future is volatile, and B, some people don't care about that. Some people just want to go to a game and see their team win and see their team perform at a high level. And that's been my, my motto with the Lions. You know, I'm, I've got tickets. I'm going to go up to Thanksgiving. They're going to be playing the Eagles. I don't want to go up there and say, oh, yeah, I want to sit in the sands and see how they can lose hmm. so we can get a better draft position on God knows who. No, I want to see them beat the Eagles Yeah, because it's Thanksgiving. Right, right. And you want to yeah. see a win. You're going, you're paying for the tickets. It's yeah, I, mean, it's, I, I hear you. It's value for the customer. It's what it, what about the customer experience? Yeah, the customer experience would be great down the road if somehow the stars align and you find a superstar in the draft. But, I mean, other than that, you're just roll, it, it's hope trafficking. You're rolling the dice on the future and saying, yeah, we might have a, a phenomenal talent here in the future. But until then, I mean, I, I don't know. It's 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 something that's just it's gambling is what it is. And let's let's go into that just a little bit, because I wanted to talk about some of the differences and similarities between baseball and football. And one of the things right. that stands out immediately, of course, is just the the, the uh, what we'll call small sample sizes and uh, fast action in football yeah. and slower in baseball. The baseball season's 10 times as long as football. But this seems to me like this extends even to something as simple as the draft that the time from from the draft of a player in, in the NFL versus MLB seems like it's a lot shorter in football. How long does it take on average from, from draft time to, Hey, he's on the team and, and contributing. That really depends on the round, right? Um, it's, it's really changed over the years too. Like uh, the, the lions drafted some tackle for the offensive line and he wasn't supposed to start this year, but injuries made it so that he has. And the fact that the line just hasn't been good. Whereas you look over at a situation like, the Jaguars or any given quarterback in the NFL it used to be the quarterback had to sit on the sidelines and get a little seasoning before he jumps in, you know, but now it's like, Oh, Hey, we get a rookie quarterback, throw him out there. Cause we need to win. And it's always exacerbated by the problem that the teams that aren't good and the teams that need like have a younger roster or need to win like right now, mm-hmm. they're usually the ones at the top of the draft. Usually guys, I mean, if you're coming out of uh college most guys coming out of college are in like the third round of fourth year third year fourth year or so and like yeah they're they're grown men they're ready to play like right now whereas yeah no i know in baseball i live in toledo i get to see the the mud hens all the time mm-hmm. i understand for there it takes a little seasoning although i am noticing in baseball there are a few younger guys who are coming up real quickly like who was it for the cubs this year chris bryant right right chris how bryant. old is he Rob, 22, 23, something like that. Yeah, he's a baby. He, yeah. he, he just came out of college, too, didn't he? Yeah, but that, I mean, that's certainly a, a more rare thing to have, you know, right. men will be ready talent coming right through. I mean, most guys, you get drafted out of college at, you know, 18 years old and not show up in the major leagues till you're 23 yeah, years old. But there is something there about that sample size, too. And also for football, there is the idea that these guys only have so many miles on their body. Hmm. Like the very, the most famous lion of the modern era, uh, Barry Sanders, you know, running backs get chewed up so quickly in the, in the NFL because you're one guy holding the ball, running at the hole as hard as you can. And 11 guys are trying to just beat the hell out of you. That position <laughs> right. hurts. Yeah. 
that really hurts. And after a while, guys, their body just can't take it anymore. Hmm. So there is a very grim notion to football that's like we need to get these guys out here and get what we can out of them. And then it's just a matter of no one really knows how to develop the talent. After like, you know, the, those four, year, four or five years of college, no one really knows what to do with it after that. Like, Are you talking about the Lions specifically or in football in general? Just I, I think we're in bigger issues here, too. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Lions in general, I'm trying to think. I mean, Ebron, Eric Ebron, I'm trying to think of the last few first round picks they've had. So Eric Ebron, the tight end, he has basically played as soon as they got, he got in. But that's a skill position. That's like going out catching uh Lakin Tomlinson, yeah. Amir Abdullah running back who they took this year, he's been seeing significant time. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is basically you're assumed once you come out of the, those years of college, you're ready to go. Like you, you could be ready to ask to put on the helmet at any moment and just get on out there. So sticking with this concept of, of drafting and player development and so forth, it's it's amazing to me. Now, keep in mind, this is the very first year I've ever watched football, period. I was anti-football, hated the sport, <laughs> actively campaigned against it for you know many, many, many years. Uh, but one of the things that I'm noticing now is I'm kind of paying more attention and reading up on the Lions history and so forth. Look, Chris, I know what it takes to put together a good baseball team. I right. know what it takes for a GM. You know, how do we evaluate a GM and the moves that he's making? And, you know, how do you get this team in contention? I don't know this about football. And what was interesting to me is that when the Lions fired their general manager, most of the fan base was thrilled as, as opposed to what happened with the Tigers when they fired Dave Dombrowski. There was more of a sense of that's not a good idea. He's a, he's a really good GM. So tell me if you can sum this up, the lifelong Lions problem. Um, how is it that you have a team 50, 60 years that has never even made a Super Bowl appearance? How, how do you screw this up? How? 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 <laughs> you know, I, I'm actually wondering in the macro term how that works to myself. I've been doing this for about, oh, I mean, I've been a Lions fan for as long as I can remember, and I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how you just keep destroying it. Like, they had a chance in the 90s where they had those teams, Wayne Fonts, Barry Sanders. Uh, I'm Tremor, the quarterback at the time. My brain farts out like this all the time, so I apologize. But they had those teams, and those were good. Those guys would go to the playoffs. But then the thing is, you talk about the one-game sample size. It's even a smaller sample size once you get to the playoffs. It is a one-game roll of the dice. And that's it's worked against the Lions like every time. And we can talk about what it was last year with the Dallas Cowboys and that amazing defense and the flag that was picked up and the punt that was shanked and everything else just... It, it just never the break seems to go this way. You guys can relate a little bit too because those are, I always find when I'm watching baseball, those early rounds in the playoffs, the division series, sure. the wild card, it almost seems cruel that the whole season of baseball is crunched down to a five game sample size or a one game sample size. Even a seven game sample size seems right. small for me. And I'm always frustrated because I look at college football, I look at the NFL and those sample sizes always like I, I use football outsiders, which does advanced stats for them, but football advanced stats are just so like, it's hard to do just because of that sample size. You're really trying to, and the fact that everything's interconnected, you try to cut through all that clutter. When Mayhew was fired and I'm sorry, I go off on these tangents. When Mayhew was fired, the thing is, is that I can tell when there's a bad GM because you can see where he's screwed up. I don't, but like all these people who are like posting these things, showing you candidates for other general manager positions. I don't know like too much about them because when it comes to the NFL, the usually the ones like I, I'm trying to think of a good GM, but they're always nameless. 
right? They're always nameless and faceless. You talk about Bill Belichick with the Patriots, who is this amazing coach, but he's also the one who kind of controls all those personnel decisions. The good coaches always seem to control those personnel decisions. Uh, there is a few guys out there who have been replacing but Mayhew, I think the breaking point, and we talked about this on our podcast, the breaking point there was uh, when they drafted Eric Ebron in 2013, I want to say. Yeah, it was 2013. Because at the... T- or was it 20... Either way, I don't... Yeah. It was, it was, it was soon. It was 2013, 2014. I get the, the years mixed up because of where it comes. But it was the idea that it's like you drafted this guy way ahead of where you should. Because there's a lot of fans out there who just, they pour over these things. They really know where guys should be going in these drafts. And it's just always, it's felt like this, that this was a continuation of the Matt Millen times in the early 2000s when the team was at its deepest, darkest bottom. Martin Mayhew served under him. And this has been a mark of the Fords that they're very loyal to their people. Mayhew himself, not just a general manager, he'd been in this thing for about like seven years. Actually, I think he's a general manager for seven years. And Tom Lewan, the president, was a president for 12. So, I mean, it was continued through that dark period with the Lions. It wasn't like this was someone new who was supposed to be brought in to change the franchise. This was someone who was within and part of that old regime. And that's what Lions fans want. They want someone who's from the outside. Dave Dombrowski wasn't, didn't come from inside the lion, the tigers in those nineties years or even the early two thousands, right? He was, they right. plucked him out from, from the, from the Mar was it the Marlins at the time they plucked him from? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like lions have been getting their guys coming from inside the same organization for years and they just want someone from the outside. So that's very interesting that the previous GM you're saying was, uh, or I should say the current GM served under the previous GM. So when yeah, they swapped the previous out... GM, we don't speak his name that much. Okay. It, it, it invokes it would be like, evil. It would be like if the Tigers had hired whoever Randy Smith's assistant GM was after Randy Smith was fired in, I think it was like 2001, 2002. But that's the thing, Rob. This sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Because Dave Dombrowski goes out and who takes his place except his understudy. Alabila. Well, I was, I, I, I got to say, I, I get a little terrified each time you guys seem to flirt with Alan Trammell. I'll say that much. You were saying, Rob? Well, it's, I think it's a little bit different there because, you know, as far as the, the Millen to Mayhew transition was a lot more like Randy Smith in that we don't want to speak his name. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then obviously they go outside the organization. So I think that that is kind of it's a little bit different because you know the lions have had you know some decent seasons there uh in the in the recent years and mayhew was you know by all accounts from what i've read and everything a decent gm you know maybe not the best but not the worst either cuz they had the worst right before him um in that so you know i it's it's a very different situation, I think, but at the same time, there are a lot of similarities. For that. It just gets to that question that you and I talked about in some previous podcasts. That you know, how do you how do you take the owner seriously? How do you take Mike Illich seriously when he says, "I want to go in a new direction," and then he simply stays within the organization? Everybody just moves up. It's it's just kind of a weird 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 similarity there with the Lions, but that's uh, a go and down. I know. I'm sorry. I, I know in the Lions situation. The owner, this is kind of a newish owner situation because Martha Ford is actually taking over her husband who died, William Clay Ford. Mm-hmm. And up until what she just did a couple of weeks ago where she just goes into Allen Park and just starts firing everyone, no one knew anything about her. She had never really spoken with a lot of people. And, like, there's, there's, there's 
some there's some tension with fans right now and that people don't know what she is right now like she's saying a lot of good things like fans you deserve better and there's more urgency with it but you know you got to see what the what the results going to be first so what are you hoping for from the new GM? I guess this gets back to the question of how, how do the Lions keep screwing this up? Is it because they're drafting the wrong talent? Is it because they, uh, I, you know, when I look at Dave Dombrowski, that was one of the criticisms with him is that the Tigers just didn't really do a good job of drafting new talent and developing new talent. But Dave made up for it by being excellent at uh, mm-hmm. trading, you know, and, and assigning the right free agents going out and spending the money. Is there is there any kind of a parallel there? Well, Kind of almost in the reverse because Mayhew, while he did drop off as a drafter, he did some interesting stuff early in his regime. Like in 2008, he traded away Roy Williams for like, a, and he got a first rounder out of it and a bunch of other draft picks. But then he kind of promptly like wasted those in like a blocking tight end, which is like okay, that's that's nice, but it just felt like you could do better. Uh, I would say the problem was too, like the fact the president got fired is also very big because. I mentioned earlier that situation where the Lions are like held up with a couple of their big contracts because of the salary cap. That's kind of because of Mayhew and Luan is that situation. So whoever comes in needs to first figure out that cap situation. And then it's just a matter of I would I mean, I've been advocating as far as just trying to find some new guys to kind of like the way the Lions have been doing things for years is basically trying to find the scraps of other people. And it's not really advancing it's not really a forward-thinking philosophy organizationally or trying to change the game of football and i've always been fascinated by methods and scouting techniques and analytics that change a game that just completely break it take it down to its basic levels and just tries to rework it and i would like someone like that for the lions it's it's a hell of a stretch it is a pipe dream but i would like something like that i just like someone who could just you know come in and start doing i wouldn't say money ball with with Hmm. football but someone that could just you know just we've been doing the same thing in detroit for 50 years you'd think at some point someone's like okay let's let's give someone some time to just doing something really radical or just i mean people are but it goes all over the place. Some people are like eyeing guys from the Patriots and the Packers because they've built good organizations. And I guess you could maybe do that. But again, I don't know how to do the calculus on <laughs> on uh, these front office people for, for the NFL because there's really there, – you don't have any data on them, unlike with basketball and baseball. You don't have data on these general managers because their their roles are just so limited and they're so in the shadows compared to those two sports. I've only been watching, like I said, the team for this just this one season, and the one question that I guess I have is, how, how long is it going to take before they're good, <laughs> or am I in for another 20 oh years? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. How, let's, let's make this more relevant <laughs> to the whole baseball discussion, because... You know, like I, like I was saying, I know what it takes to do what you need to do to get a good team on the field for baseball, and it can take, you know, a couple of years to get from worst to first. Or you can turn it around really quickly by making all the right moves, the right free agent signings and trades and so forth. How quickly can the Lions turn it around? Is it going to be a two, three-year rebuild process, or could they be right back at it next year and contending? It really really depends what you believe about one key piece. And that's always the one thing about football is that you have a key piece there, and that's always going to be the quarterback on the field. Hmm. Because the quarterback is that important in everything. You really can't go anywhere in the NFL without a quarterback. And I know where you're going with this. That imagines... You, it, whether you believe or not in Matthew Stafford. 
And I'm not one who really believes in it. A lot of other people, though, have scathed me for it. I came out with an article, I think, last month saying staffers a client isn't going to end here. And I had people insulting me all across Facebook. I had people saying I should never write again. I had a guy telling me that I should move on to politics because it's more cheery than talking about Lions football for me. Or And then I had someone saying that I, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about because I was a starter on a flag football team. And I was like, man, I didn't even start on the flag football team. Why are you telling me this? So, yeah, I don't. It, that it's, it's whether you believe in Matt Stafford. It's whether you believe that everything that's gone wrong with him this year is about other factors like the offensive line. And granted, that offensive line has, has been really bad. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people have been saying this for years, though, about the Lions. Like, they've got a lot of talent. They just need a good coach. They've got a lot of talent. They just need a new coach. Well, you have that talent. Stafford is still young, but Calvin Johnson is kind of aging. Uh, the money situation means that you had to turn away in Dominican Sue and you might have to turn away more in the future. And I mean, at some point you just got to stop saying the talent is good here and just wonder, is it really that good? So I guess that if that answers your question, is this a quick turnaround or is this going to take a while? Yeah, it makes sense. And to try to draw yeah. the parallel with baseball, it's almost like, is your starting rotation any good? And, and if you can make, put right. together a good starting rotation, and certainly Tigers fans are, are all too familiar with the same kind of argument with Justin Verlander and saying, hey, is he in decline, especially in 2014? And you get mm-hmm. this movement of, hey, let's put Verlander in the bullpen for crying out loud. Yeah, that was that was fascinating when I heard that stuff going around. It, like, it sounds like the same, you know, the same kind of thing. And uh yeah, so it's let, let's let's move on to the speed round here because you touched on on one item there that I wanted to kind of get into, sure. uh, just these the, the similarities and the differences we talked about. But I had this kind of epiphany last year in noticing that there was this very kind of vocal part of the Tigers fan base that is very, I don't know, knee jerk, reactionary. Um, you know, the Tigers lose four or five games and suddenly it's ah, that's it, the season's over, fire everybody. And I say I don't really understand. And then it dawned on me, I think most of these people are football fans who are primarily football fans and kind of, you know, just past the summertime with, you know, checking in on the Tigers. But they bring that kind of football mentality to it. Uh, It's just it's very interesting to me that, um, you know, you talk about the, the, the team is struggling and you just said this, too. You've got a good team you got to get a different coach. That is something that I hear in baseball all the time. But I think it's uh, it's very different between football and baseball because right. tell me this. In, in football, if I'm not mistaken, the head coach has a lot to do with, oh, yeah. with the game. Like, I mean, the manager for baseball, and I mean, again, I am a bit of a baseball fan. I mean, the manager for there, you, you've got a few things to take care of there about shifts, about, you know, how to manage the bullpen, uh, lineups, everything. We're talking these guys who are coaches in the NFL and in college, they work 100-hour weeks. And that's not because they're bad at their job or they're just screwing around or anything. They actually spend that much time develop, designing these plays, trying to come up with – basically trying to reinvent the wheel. And it's in – you know, you kind of have to reinvent the wheel if you're in football because this is a game that is for as brutal and violent and destructive to the human body as it is, and kind of why I like writing about it, to be honest, because it's fascinating, kind of that, you know, clash with what is inherent human nature, which I like think is good. There is also a massive cerebral level. This game is about fooling everyone else. And all the end coaches, I mean, you're, if your schemes aren't, are like, that was a big problem with the Lions early in the season. People were saying, 
Right. Yeah, we know what plays they're going to run. And if the defense knows what plays you're going to run, they can jump on it and they can shut you down immediately. And that's why their offensive coordinator was fired like before the GM and everyone else was fired here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the coach is very important. And Jim Caldwell, when he was brought in, the idea was he was going to develop the talent that was Matthew Stafford. And it just hasn't happened. You know, he leaned on a lot of the talent that was here on the defense. That that talent went away in free agency. And Everything's kind of collapsed since, and yeah, the coach does make a big amount of difference because it is a matter of scheme when it comes to it, absolutely. And yeah, it, it almost works, uh, the, the same thing is true in reverse, that I think maybe uh, someone like me who's primarily a baseball fan uh, doesn't make a very good football fan either, because I'm, I'm ready to like, yeah, give it time, you know, it's, you know give, give uh, Jim Caldwell eight more years well, to work on I mean, stuff. Yeah, I mean, but even you're, you're, you're kind of right, though. I mean, that patience is actually lacking in football now because it used to be you could say, yeah, give a coach three, four years. We're mm-hmm. talking about firing Caldwell in two years, and I would even say that's justified. But in some other situations, uh, what was the team in Tennessee? The Titans. They fired their coach after two years and what's supposed to be a complete rebuild project, and hmm. that felt rushed to me. So there is, like, there is always a sense of urgency in this game. It's kind of like... I think the closest thing is actually European soccer. I don't know how many of your fans really know much about there, but those managers get fired for bre- for like losing one match somewhere. Oh, wow. Or international soccer. Like I look at Mexico, what was it? They lost some random match and their coach gets canned and they're like burning through managers left and right or something. Well, one of the other things that I hear, too, is if you you get a particular player, uh, you know, Miguel Cabrera or whoever it is, and he's slumping for an X number of games or whatever it is, uh, the, the, the common, uh, I guess, philosophy, the wisdom of this particular vocal minority of the fan base is, hey, he needs his butt chewed out good. The manager needs to get in his mm-hmm. face, get him angry, get him amped up. And I'm like, no, you can't. Baseball I is like that baseball is so, so much about focus and so i go to watch the lions and i've got friends that are like yeah they need to get amped up i'm like no it's not i'm like wait a minute actually i think they do because this is more about just pure physicality well, yeah there is a, a, a very big emotional element to baseball i mean ooh, football where it's like you need to be amped up because you are playing on adrenaline and putting your life on the line every time you go out to make a play mm-hmm that said, though, it, it's also kind of funny because the coach who was before Jim Caldwell was Jim Schwartz, and Jim Schwartz was a blithering, angry man who would kick <laughs> playbooks. He would, he would drop kick playbooks, and he would yell at people. He And the criticism about him was he has this team undisciplined. They're getting dumb penalties. Every time the Lions would get a dumb penalty, it was because of Jim Schwartz undisciplined for the team. So what do they do? They bring in Jim Caldwell and they say, this is a calming influence on the Lions. He will give them clarity and focus and everything. And then a year later, after Caldwell's losing, it's right back the other way where we're saying, you need a guy who can be out there and get fired (laughs) up and everything like that. It's fantastic how this works out. Football sometimes can be the dumbest sport to analyze because there are so many intangibles and i wish there were more numbers sometimes just because it drives me insane dealing with narratives like that and yeah like there are a lot of detroit fans who are things of multiple sports and the popularity for detroit i've noticed seems to kind of go up and down when it comes to it right like the tigers surge up the lions surge up for a few years no one's paying attention to the pistons now all of a sudden the Pistons are starting to look good, and now everyone's over in, like, Detroit bad boy threads, and they go on, like, a three-game losing streak in a 56-game season, and everyone starts panicking. Mm. Everyone starts doing the same things you're saying about a four-game skid in baseball. 
Well, but the thing is, uh, like I said, because the baseball season is 10 times as long, uh, yeah. it, when the Lions got to the, the point where they were, whatever it was, one in five, I think, or one in four, and people were like, right. that's it, the season's over. And I went, guys, seriously? It's one in five. And then I did the math and went, okay, that's like the Tigers going yeah. 10 and 50. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets inflated. And there's also the fact that like you you would be going 10 and 50 in a division that also had, let's say... Uh, trying to think of an equitable juggernaut in baseball because the Yankees well, the Royals just won the World Series yeah I mean yeah the Royals were that good this year but I'm yeah we could we could go with the Royals but we're talking about someone who's been good for that long it's like yeah I mean you could probably Yankees. go a little more with like the Cardinals that's decent that, comparison with yeah that's what the Packers are and I mean the Packers are like suddenly down now after losing to the Lions which is fantastic they looked awful but for so many years this division just belonged to the Packers and if it wasn't the Packers it was the Vikings or the Bears were good for a few years this division that the Lions share with is just not an easy one for them they don't get any games for free when it comes to this Hmm. you fall behind a little bit even that year they went to the playoffs they had double digit wins and they had to get a wild card spot because there was the Packers one game better Hmm. Yeah, very, very similar to what you would say, like the Chicago Cubs and Pittsburgh Pirates this year oh, yeah. both had great records. But the Cardinals, doggone those Cardinals, they won 100 yeah. games. And so, yeah, the National League Central, that is exactly, yeah, that's actually the perfect example right there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, Chris, I think Rob had thrown a question in here that I can't even ask with a straight face. So I'm going to turn that <laughs> over to Rob. Yeah, I got a good one here. Uh, which owner accessory is better? Martha, Fo- uh, Martha Ford's sunglasses or Mike Illich's toupee? Oh, oh, I'm going to go with the sunglasses for Martha Ford just because you look at like that old lady like is just so yeah, like I, I heard Bomani Jones saying this the day she fired everyone. She just looks so gangster. She's that old white woman who just somehow looks in like you do not want to mess with them. Like she graduated from Vassar in an age where if you came from upstate New York, you didn't mess with a person from upstate New York. Like, and her, her maiden name is Firestone. So she has that money too. Like, yeah, those Firestones. Right. A Ford married a Firestone. She just, yeah, I, I was actually disappointed when she went out and fired everyone. I'm like, why didn't you wear the shades? You could have worn the shades. And this press conference would look fantastic. See, I, I pictured it as, um, I don't know if either of you have watched Entourage, but that scene where Ari yes. Gold runs through the office with a paintball oh. gun, I pictured that <laughs> happening, but with little old Martha Ford. <laughs> well, yeah, there was, yeah, was that the one where they, yeah, it's like you're, no, I might be thinking Mad Men's where it's like, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. Just, because that's yeah, apparently no, it was what like was that. happening. He was just kind of going yeah. through firing everyone. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's apparently that apparently, according to beat writers, was what was happening at part at Allen Park was basically people were going around the front office telling people who could stay and who could go because it wasn't just the president and and Martin Mayhew. They also got rid of a lot of the scouting staff too. Hmm. Like they were already getting rid of them before the head honchos got canned too. So it just it was it was a weird situation, and we're still trying to learn what we can about. Martha Ford, and unfortunately, like, she's just sold. I don't know we'll have much time, but, mm. you know, this this family, at least, it's a sign that the Fords might have an interest in there. I don't, how it, I don't know how it is with the Illiches. I'm kind of worried, to be honest, as a general Detroit fan who also has to worry about the Red Wings here, what happens after Mike kind of shuffles on. Like, I know Chris kind of takes a lot of decisions from what I, what's been reported, but I'm not sure 
the Illich family interest in it. Whereas for the Fords, at least, I know that, you know, they're not selling the Lions and it's kind of been passing down the generations. Yeah, and we've kicked that question around here too, uh, just, you know, in terms of when Mike Illich finally does pass on, you know, I assume it'll be Chris that takes over. And is he going to have the same kind of vested interest and the same willingness to spend the money on that that, that kind of thing? So another another similarity between them. Right. And I can tell you from the experience of the Fords through the history, that sometimes changes depending on who it is, because that was always the thing about William Clay Ford, who just recently passed on. And again, not to speak ill of the dead, but the opinion of him was always was you're too loyal to the guys you like to fire them when they're doing bad. You don't actually care about the team. And I had never seen any other franchise out there that believed that the owner was holding back the team as much as what was leveled against the Fords, not even to owners that like metal, like, you know, uh, oh man, who was the Yankees guy? I'm Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner never got hit with that. Uh, James Dolan for basketball and hockey never got hit with that. Not even not even Donald Sterling, that deplorable owner in Los Angeles, ever got hit with that. But it's it's an idea that apparently the, that William was just apathetic and just not paying attention and didn't care as much as the fans. Which I mean, maybe true because fans care almost maybe a little too much sometimes. But it, it, that was there. So yeah, that kind of thing can happen. But at the same time too. The alternative is the owner might care too much, and then you have a guy like James Dolan or Jerry Jones or Dan Snyder who runs the Washington uh, R's. I can't. I'm not going to say their name the because it is yeah. The R's is probably the best way I can do that. That is just like yeah. Dan Snyder's the great one because Dan Snyder doesn't know how to run a football team, and yet he meddles in everything. Hmm. Hmm. These are strange times indeed for both the Lions and the Tigers. Chris, I want to thank you for stopping by, and we're going to be watching, I, I mean, I will at least be watching the uh, rest of this Lions season unfold with great interest to see how this plays out, hey. not just for the team, but, you know, in terms of what, what comes next for a permanent GM and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'll tell you this much. When I came on, the managing editor, Jeremy Reisman, said I sounded like the guy who enjoys a fire, just watching it burn. So, I mean, there is there is hope for this lion season yet for me because i just i just delight in all this i i am an agent of chaos and i hope to ha- hear from you guys again because god knows you know i didn't pay too much attention this season with baseball but i'll probably be back around at some point because there's going to be if there's probably going to be some time in there where it's like okay i can't really watch the pistons can't really watch the lions and you know maybe we'll see these tigers turn around i would love for that to happen because it just—it's better when all these teams in Detroit are doing good. It just—it just is. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun to be a city where you have four sports teams and hope that they all do really well. Well, if you ever need help figuring out how to make a losing season entertaining, you can certainly take some <laughs> tips from us. We, we've been doing that since uh, July of this year, and we've come up with some really fun ideas. And here we are, still podcasting uh, yeah. after all of that. So We also run our own podcast. We're on, I think we usually drop it on Thursdays. It's called The Podcast, very simply, Pride of Detroit Podcast Podcast. And we'll definitely try to have you guys on sometime because, I mean, otherwise, if I don't bring on other Detroit sports, what's going to happen is – Two of the other writers, Ryan and Alex, they are just going to talk about wrestling nonstop. <laughs> like they, they are WWE fans, and I had to allot them one podcast, just five minutes to talk about, uh, what was his name? Some wrestler who had gone down who had the belt or whatever. I, I don't keep up with it. I watch like two wrestling events a year. 
So I, I need I need some sanity. Please help me help you. I think we can we can probably work something out there. It's not a <laughs> not a problem. And that is Chris Lemieux of the Pride of Detroit blog, uh, SP Nation's Detroit Lions blog. Find him at prideofdetroit.com and also on Twitter at Malkovich Plan. Thanks again for stopping by, Chris. We'll talk to you no soon. No problem. You guys have fun. All right. See ya. And that is the end of the road for us for this edition of The Voice of the Turtle. Rob, any post-game comments? I will honor our newly reminted managing editor, Kurt Menching, by saying, nope, I gotta pee. Good God. I, and I thought I was done with that. I thought I was done with that on the podcast, but not. Okay. All right. Remember, we are only half of the conversation. You guys are the other half. Leave your comments for us at the website at blessyouboys.com. Find the podcast post and chime in there. Find us on Twitter at hookslidebyb and at bybrob, or send us an email at bybtigers at gmail.com. So on behalf of Robert Jackie and inactive GMs everywhere, this is Hookslide saying qualifying offers are for chumps like Colby Rasmus, so hold out for a bigger payday. And we'll see you the next time on The Voice of the Turtle.